I mean, what I'm kind of looking for is, do I have some reason to believe that this person can build something big and people will follow them and they have insights about what they're doing and clarity of vision and ambition about it all? You are listening to The Sure Shot Entrepreneur, a podcast for founders with ambitious ideas, venture capital investors, and other early believers tell you relatable, insightful, and authentic stories to help you realize your vision. Paul Arnold is the founding partner at Switch VC, an early stage venture capital firm based in San Francisco. He invests in talented entrepreneurs at the earliest stages and takes a data-driven approach to his investment decisions. He's a lawyer turned consultant turned venture capital investor and a good friend of mine. Paul, welcome to the Sure Shot Entrepreneur. Thanks for having me. In today's episode, we're going to talk about a few different things, but I want to start with uh, the question, tell me about yourself, a little more detail about uh, your background. Yeah, where to start? I mean, I grew up in a small town on unra- in, on ranches in Wyoming, you know, which is a very unpopulated state full of cowboys and oil fields and cows. And, and it was a great place to grow up. I spent the first 19 years of my life there, not knowing any different, really. Went off to college, went eventually off to New York City and back to school. And then at some point, was kind of committed to this idea of coming up to Silicon Valley and being involved with startups and, and, and technology and, and came out here, have been here ever since. I've worked a number of jobs out here, worked for McKinsey, I've worked startup executive, and then now doing what I'm doing now with uh, Switch Ventures as a seed stage venture investor. How do you think about investments? How is your philosophy different from other venture capital investors? Yeah, the biggest way that I probably am different than other seed stage venture investors is how seriously a data-driven approach using predictive analytics. And to founders, it probably doesn't look any different than any other venture fund that they interact with, any other manager. But on my side, I really do take that seriously and and have invested money and time and lots of thought into how do you take data about founders and startups and going back for long periods of time and accumulating that data at a large scale so that you can think in probabilistic terms about what kinds of companies and teams are better positioned for success and how can you stack the hands a little bit in this very hard job of, of picking good venture investments so that you can you, you can have a good, a good roster of people and how, how can you use the math and to me it's really interesting it's intellectually interesting you know it's, it's professionally rewarding because it, it works pretty well and uh, i do think that's pretty different some of the later stage larger funds do it in a serious way. Sequoia does it very seriously. Lots of, you know, several other larger funds have serious data science efforts. I think at the seed stage, it's, it's unusual, and it's, but it's something that I, I really value and, and believe in. What kind of data do you use, and how do you use it? What kind of, can you give a, a description of the predictive model that you use? Yeah, without, without giving away everything, it's data around founding teams. It's a historic set of data hundreds of thousands of founders, frankly, and and all the venture investments and all those people that ever happened and the outcomes of those venture investments. That's sort of the the quick brush of what the data is. And then the lot and then lots and lots of information about those people. And what I try to do is engineer our features and, and identify characteristics about these founders that end up in kind of in simple kind of linear regression type models, but also in complex machine learning, gradient boosted type of models predicting profiles of success. 
This is uh, this is fascinating. You talk about predicting success in the startup world, which is one of the most difficult things to do. Do you feel like the time has come for information this because there's more data available or do you feel like the whole industry is kind of maturing you know, just like how it happened in mutual funds where it all became algorithm driven? Is that the direction in which we're going? I would not want to do venture investing in an algorithm uh, driven way. Nate Silver's who became famous before his politics and journalism became you know, famous in some communities for building models that predicted players' performance in baseball. And he tells a story about when the quants, the famous story of Billy Bean and the, and the Oakland Athletics in Moneyball, when the quants came to baseball, they were able to outperform the average scout. These talent scouts would go and they'd sit down at high school baseball games and they'd watch people and they would, through some magic, uh, some combination of magic and intuition, and whatever else, they would they would pick the players that they thought would become great. And it was notoriously difficult. It was really, really hard to pick the, the future great players in baseball from high school teams. But some scouts were really good at it. The quants beat the scouts on average, for sure. But what they couldn't do is beat the best. They couldn't beat the best scouts. The best scouts could still beat the quantitative models. And that was, that's interesting right there. That's full stop. Pretty interesting. But what's even more interesting than that is that when you combined an average scout with a quant, they could be the top scouts. So there's this lesson about using rigorous mathematical models in, in combination with human intuition. That, that is this really powerful combination. The exact same thing's true in chess. There's no player alive that can beat the best computer anymore. But a, a mediocre player, not, not a grandmaster, but just a regular good player combined with a computer can beat any computer. And so you get this kind of similar combination where you get the powerful sort of analytical models combined with human intuition really leads to the strong, strongest results. When, when you meet an entrepreneur, what kind of information do you look for that helps feed into the model? I, I don't. At that point, it's done. At that point, I'm okay. just getting to know people and I'm just getting to okay. know their their businesses. And so it, by the time I'm talking to them, that, that part's ended. And I, ju I just really want to understand the model. And but still a pretty aggressive pipeline for me. I talk to a lot of a lot of companies for each investment I make. And it's that part to the founders is going to look a lot. It would look talking to other venture investors where I'm trying to understand the product, the market, the people themselves at a personal level the customers, the market dynamics, competitive dynamics, the unit economics, that kind of business, all that kind of stuff. Just really, really digging into it. And and that, uh, and that then trying to paint a constellation from that information and, and, and deciding whether, you know, it's, it's something I have conviction about or not. And so that part, the models become irrelevant, but the model steers me kind of in the early process. Okay. So for an entrepreneur, it really makes no difference whether they talk to you or any other VC firm. They engage with you in the same way they engage. They don't, it's not like they need to produce their credit history or things like that. No, as far as they're concerned, there's no, no difference okay. at all. No difference at all. So this model and the predictive analytics is your superpower in, that's in your back pocket. And that helps you prepare yourself and look for maybe certain industry sectors, certain trends, which trend is a real trend, which one is a, a, a short-term thing that might disappear. Some opportunities where underserved markets uh, deserve some innovation. Those are the type of things that you prepare yourself for. Is, is that a yeah. right way to describe it? Absolutely. Okay, great. What do you look for in entrepreneurs when they meet you? I know there's no standard answer to this. That's the reason why I started this podcast. I never trust I never trust people that kind of boil these people always boil down these answers to exactly what they're looking for. There's this one there's this magic trait or something. And I'm always a little suspicious of that. I sort of have this view that there's this huge difference between greatness and, and mediocrity, but greatness can kind of look a lot of different ways. 
And so people who are extremely different can each be extremely successful and most people aren't. So if that if that makes sense. I mean, what I'm kind of looking for is, do I have some reason to believe that this person can build something big and people will follow them and they have insights about what they're doing and clarity of vision and ambition about it all? I'm, all, I'm looking for them also to have pretty well thought through insights about why there's something that really can be done that they're trying to do and why they can recreate, usually recreate the industry that they're going into. And really kind of pressure testing how thought through that is, or if not, how well can they kind of get through new new thinking about it. Just, I find that to be really, really revealing about the future trajectory of the company. It's just the kind of, kind of quality and depth of insight vision that, that the founders bring into the table. Whether they can draw people, whether they can lead, whether they have the ambition, that's a huge part of it. It takes a lot of ambition to do what a, a startup's supposed to do. Um, and it's not natural for the typical person, honestly. And do these, these founders I'm talking to have it? Maybe you could give an example of a startup. How did you meet the company? What kind of questions did you ask them? And what helped you form the conviction? Yeah, one of my first investments was, you're an insurance guy, so I know you appreciate it, was in Policy Genius when they were first starting in 2012, 2013. And Policy Genius is a life insurance marketplace, and it's expanded into other verticals of insurance. It's a marketplace model where you, you know, receive a quote from lots of underwriters and you choose which insurance company you want to go with. Uh, and, and they've done really well. But when I first invested in the company, Jen and Francois were, were both at McKinsey and we had known each other at the firm. Jen was kind of on the fast track to the partnership and the insurance practice and, and more than that, kind of in the insurance and marketing. And, and she had, I think, clear insight about what was missing. It was just this white space for a company that needed to exist that didn't exist, which is what you know became Policy Genius, originally called Know-It-Owl. And I had a lot of respect for her individually as a person, character, um, and leader, and, but then also for the, just the quality of insight she developed. We, we, went, we were on calls all the time through kind of the thinking and development the company and i just knew that i I believed her and that what she was saying was right and it was uh, right because it's intuitive to me it was right because of the depth of her understanding of what she was what she was getting into and i made that without any hesitation first as an angel later as a venture investor and all the way through every every financing that the companies ever had and it's been just a thrill to see to see them grow yeah, I met Jen many years ago when I, when she was raising her first seed round of funding. I wish mm. I invested. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Shut up. But is that the typical <laughs> stage where you get involved uh, when entrepreneurs are just building their business? They have an idea. They may not have a lot of traction in the market. What would be an ideal, what's a typical opportunity that you look at? I would say somewhere between day one and year two. That, that's sort of the, the window of when I'll get involved. The first 650 days of the business. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I stay involved with the companies as they as they mature, but I, that's when I want to get involved is in those early stages. And some companies are off to faster start than others, but it's it, it's it's in that time. Are there things that entrepreneurs uh, do that makes it easier for you to you know, have those conversations that you 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 mentioned earlier? That deep thought on how they're going to build the business, uh, their ideas on how they want to you know, market. Are, are there things that they can do to make it easy for you to have those conversations? 
Yes. So the worst thing you can do is not prepare a VC for the conversation. If you send me your deck, if you send me a white paper you wrote on your industry a week before we talk, I'm going to use the time to develop a thesis before we even talk. And, and the conversation is going to be far more productive than the one where you're kind of telling me for the first time in person, you kept it a secret up till then, you didn't want to share your deck. <laughs> All these things where there's, I've been kept blind until this moment of conversation. And so the conversation part ends up being just a waste. It's just this information transmission of the basics. And I could have used that time to actually come in two levels in on thinking. And we really could have got somewhere interesting for myself and for, for you and, and a lot further down the line of potential investment, because I'm going to have to get there anyways. But the founders that didn't kind of give me enough to really dig in to, to be ready for that conversation, it, we're, we're just off to a slow start. And it's kind of a waste, in my opinion. Founders do it for reasons they do it, but I, I tend to think it's a, it's a mistake. What's your pet peeve? Looks like we're hitting very close to some of your pet peeves here. I don't know if it's a pet peeve. I mean, I'm not going to get all bothered about what somebody does, but I just think it's a mistake. Yeah, I see what you mean. When they, when an entrepreneur sends you information, you invest the time to prepare, you research, you, we're all geeks in some form. So we geek out on those topics. We come with an informed mind with some questions that we want to ask. When nothing is available, uh, and the entrepreneur is very cagey, and it's it's not their fault because they might have shared information with another VC who probably you not. Know, pass that deck onto the internet and that's not the right thing to do. So therefore the entrepreneur withholds everything and then they want to talk about it in the first meeting. That doesn't help us because we don't have prior knowledge on what's really happening with the business. We have to recalibrate and steer the discussion in a direction that gets to more meaningful conversations. That's hard. Yeah, yeah, exactly. What it means is that first meeting is, ju is just superficial. Mm. And I have to ask the first 50 questions to just paint the picture before I, you can kind of click into level two and mm. really start thinking about what that all means. And so it's just a blown opportunity. Uh, that That's my take on it. What about uh, stealth mode startups? What do you do in those situations? I think that if I were a founder, what I would do is be stealth mode selectively. I mean, I would still share what I'm doing with investors that I'm trying to get money from and employees that I'm trying to hire and partnerships that I'm trying to build. I, I, there's all sorts of sensitivity and tactics to that. I think a lot of times, sometimes stealth is more justified than other times. So a lot of times it's just kind of silly. <laughs> In fact, I would say most time it's silly, but sometimes it's justified. And when it really is justified because you got some hot secret, which is almost never true, but when it is true, you have to, there's, there's a lot of tactical things to do. And you can imagine in that scenario, taking a bunch of extra precautions. I would say it's almost never the case that there was some state CIA secret that couldn't be revealed. I just, I just rarely see that. I see the perception of that a lot of the time. Founders often think that a lot of times it's just the silliest thing in the world. The, the the secret there's there's something to the old adage that it's 99 perspiration it's you know that people are going to steal the one percent which is your idea it's whether you're just going to get the idea going and you're going to win it, yeah stealth mode sometimes is a is a marketing gimmick it creates a kind of an aura a mystery around the startup so that's sometimes good for a startup maybe they use that as a, a tool for marketing but i agree with you that with Investors who entrepreneurs want to establish a long-term relationship, there has to be some level of trust and openness. The information needs to be shared. That's the risk that entrepreneurs have to take. 
Well, this is fascinating. I I want to ask you about your involvement in any community leadership roles, a nonprofit organization that you're passionate about. Where I've been spending a lot more time locally in San Francisco is with the Commonwealth Club, which is an organization I think the world of. The Commonwealth Club is a very old San Francisco institution that was uh, originally just a civic organization for people to come together and have conversations, you know, large bias towards issues around government, society, and a range of topics. And, and originally a local body, people in person coming to listen to their local senator and have a conversation about the you know topic of the day, the Vietnam War, whatever it was. And that that's grown over time into it is that, but it's also the radio programs, the 450 affiliate radio stations that the Commonwealth Club has played on and has been played on for quite a long time all around the country, the YouTubes and the podcasts and everything that people listen to. But it's, it's a civic organization around having conversations that matter for society. And they do a fantastic job facilitating and brokering those conversations uh, that are important for in, in, a, in a civic society. So I, a real organization, I've enjoyed being involved. I try to help them think about what things I, I can help them think about and, and work on, which is for me, it's a lot of you know digital distribution stuff and, and adapting for the new ways that media is shared, the social media and tech, tech environment. But it's, it's a great organization and I'm happy to be a part of it. I'm I'm glad to hear that you're a podcast listener. What role do you play with Commonwealth Club? I lead a digital distribution effort. Ah, okay, great. Well, thanks so much for sharing your insights on the startup world. And it's great to hear about your community involvement through Commonwealth Club. Thanks a lot for spending time with me today. It's uh, always great talking to you. I look forward to sharing your insights with the world. Good to chat to you today. Thank you for listening to the SureShot Entrepreneur. I hope you enjoyed listening to real-life stories about early believers supporting ambitious entrepreneurs. Please subscribe to the podcast and post a review. Your comments will help other entrepreneurs find this podcast. I look forward to catching you at the next episode.